On this episode, I'm in the room with Sherry Lowe discussing her book, Slaying the Debt Dragon. Welcome to In the Room, episode number 35. I'm Ryan Hughley, and if you're listening for the first time, I'm the founding and lead pastor of Redemption Bible Church just outside Chicago. You can find lots of ways for you and I to stay connected online by visiting my blog at ryanhughley.com. That's H-U-G-U-L-E-Y. In the Room is your opportunity to eavesdrop on my conversations with interesting people. Every week, I sit down with people of varied backgrounds, perspectives, and vocations. So I end up talking with pastors, professors, authors, and artists about their stories, their crafts, and how they do what they do. On this episode, I'm in the room with Sherry Lowe. A few years back, Sherry and her husband woke up and realized that they had accumulated almost $130,000 in debt. That realization sent them on a journey that resulted in her recent book, Slaying the Debt Dragon. I'm happy to report that by God's grace, they climbed out of that hole and now they spend their lives helping other people do the same. Sherry and her husband's story has been shared in the Wall Street Journal. They've appeared on Yahoo Finance, DaveRamsey.com, and Relevant Magazine. Sherry now appears weekly as a savings expert uh, on the NBC affiliate in Indianapolis, Indiana. In my conversation with Sherry, we discuss the sometimes subtle ways that debt happens, where to start slaying your own debt dragon, and some things to look out for in the process. Now get comfortable and come on in the room for my conversation with Sherry Lowe. Well, Sherry, thanks so much for coming on In the Room. I appreciate it. It's great to have you. I wanted to start, I think someone told me at one point that you wrote an article about slaying the debt dragon for Relevant Magazine. Is that yes. correct? Yeah, so, so is that a few times so over at Relevant. Is that how the book came to be? Like, which came first? You wrote the book, then the article? Because the, the article in Relevant was a pretty big deal from what I heard from, from Tyndale. Well, the the book was first. Okay. The article was second. Um, the book actually, I won a publishing contest with a rewrite conference. Oh, okay. Yeah, back in 2013, it was kind of my first stab out into the publishing world, and um, Tyndale sponsored that um, publishing contest. And so I prepared the proposal and all of the information that goes along with that not really intending to win at all, just because I had a friend who was an author who said, I think you need to do this. And so it was an act of obedience. And then I actually had to write the book after I won because the proposal doesn't contain the entire book. And so a little bit of a shock and we moved on a very fast track to get the book out there. What have been some of the uh, lessons that you've learned thus far as a first time author? It's got to be a bit overwhelming. It definitely is. You know, the the more I know, the less I know. Yeah. Um, but it has been a great adventure, and I've really, really enjoyed it, learning more about the creative process, as well as connecting with readers. Within the last month or so, I've had lots of emails roll in from people who have read the book, who have been encouraged, who have made life change because of the book, and that just kind of blows my mind. Yeah. Um, you know, you write something, you hope and you pray that people will receive it the right way, and that it will be an encouragement to them, but you never really know. That's not up to you. You just right. do because you've been called to do. Yep. And so, you know, that step, that's been amazing to yeah. kind of see some of that feedback and realize that, yes, it is making a difference in people's lives. Yeah. Well, I have to think that one of the things that people are really connecting with in the book is that it's not just theory. Um, you know, you're not like a like an economics major or an accountant or a, you're, you're, you are a person that this practice that you've written about 
really came out of you having to climb out of your own debt. And so I was wondering if you could, for people that aren't familiar with your story, just can you tell me a little bit about your story and what led to what has become Slaying the Debt Dragon? Certainly. You know, I am just kind of the girl next door in that regard. I'm not a guru. I'm not an expert. This is not an economic treatise. I unloaded my dishwasher 15 minutes ago. This is, (laughs) you know, this is real life. And so our story is that back in 2008, we were about ready to have our second daughter, Zoe. She burst onto our scene rather unexpectedly. Okay. I don't know. Probably a lot of listeners have experienced yes. that as well. And having a child always shifts your lens a little bit. And my husband, Brian, had been casting this vision for us to get out of debt for about two years. And it was at that point with another mouth to feed, another person to see into adulthood, that we realized that our finances were a complete wreck. And we really needed to change the direction we were going. Otherwise, it was only going to get worse. Yeah. So April 2nd, 2008, we launched into this journey that we thought would take us 15 years, seven and a half if we really hustled. And yet God has much better math than we do. And it took just under four years for us to pay off $127,482.30. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about uh, and uh, your. So some people are going to hear one hundred twenty-seven thousand dollars in debt, and sometimes when we think about people who are in debt in general, uh, before we get into sort of the process for how you lay out how to get out of it, I want to talk about the consequences of debt. Sure. But if we could just start with like. Tell me a little bit about how that happened for you, because it wasn't like you weren't buying yachts, you weren't (laughs) buying homes, you weren't buying, you talk about you weren't buying designer clothes. What are some of the subtle ways that people find themselves slipping further and further into debt? I always tell people it happened by not paying attention. Okay. Uh, And it just happened by us daily not really having a plan or an overall vision for our finances. And so, you know, it wasn't like you said, we have nothing to show for it other than a couple of degrees. But as far as, you know, there was no great big McMansion, there was no vacation where we went skydiving and backpacked through Europe. There was, you know, none of that. No boots. I got interviewed by Redbook a couple of years ago, and I think they were looking for a sensational story like that, where I had just gone in and maxed out the credit card and bought one in every color of whatever. And there was nothing to show for it. So all very boring things like breaks, things like dining out too often, things like small gifts. And if I'm quite honest, junk and a lot of ways that we really couldn't say, oh, this is what this $127,000 looks like. And so that's, I think, kind of subtly every day by not paying attention, not really being excited about the gifts that we've been given and and seeing their purpose is how we landed in that heap. Yeah, well, I know that debt has really devastating consequences. There's internal, I think, consequences, there's external consequences. And as you're having these interactions with people, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that because I know that at one point in my life, um, I had my wife and I combined probably had somewhere between thirty and forty thousand mm-hmm. dollars in debt that was you know primarily wrapped up in school loans, like you had right. said. But there was a time even before we got married where um, I had maxed a credit card 
because I just had no idea what I was doing with finance. Mm -hmm. So I probably had somewhere between ten and $12,000 just in credit card debt. And I remember one day I was trying to figure out how am I going to get out of this? And um, I remember thinking, I was not by any means suicidal, but I remember distinctly having a day where I thought, I know why people kill themselves when they get buried in debt, because Mm -hmm. it does feel so enslaving. So when you think about the consequences, first, tell me a little bit of what's, what's common internally in people that people feel in the midst of debt? Well, I can definitely speak to what I felt. And that was just kind of a sense of being completely and totally overwhelmed with not even a notion of where to begin. And then couple that with a hopelessness of this is never going to end. And then top it off with this sense of being alone. And I think this is the number one enemy that the lot and that the Oh, sorry, the number one lie that the enemy whispers into our ears is that you are the only one. Yeah, that's right. You know, and I've written specifically that relevant article was about me sitting in the purple chairs in our church and hearing another sermon on tithing and feeling just completely bottomed out that... And looking around at the faces there and thinking everybody else has their stuff together. Everybody else knows what they're doing. They love Jesus more and I am a mess. And what is wrong with me? And that sense of isolation, that's exactly what the enemy wants in our lives because we'll never get help if we think we're the only one. And so one of the biggest things that we did early on was to drag what was considered to us, this sense of darkness out into the light and just say, this is where we're at. And it's one of the reasons why I started queenoffree.net was to begin to share our story. And what we found was that when we drug that darkness into the light, it lost its power over us in a lot of ways. And it it also brought people into our lives who said, me too. And I thought I was the only one too, you know? And so, and some of those people were people that were sitting right in those same row of chairs as I was in my own congregation. So, you know, that's the inner turmoil. Certainly it has effects on your marriage. You're, you're kidding yourself if you don't think that your debt has an effect on your relationship with your spouse. And also it has a relationship or an impact on your relationship with God as well. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, those were things that we traveled through every day yeah. of that four year period. And just that overwhelming sense of, Um, feeling overwhelmed and feeling anxious and not knowing what tomorrow holds and realizing one false move and our whole house of cards would fall down. I think that's such an important, obviously it has major implications as it pertains to debt, but just shame and sin Mm -hmm. in general is never more powerful than when it's secret and hidden and uh, is just like a giant club for the enemy to beat you with that he loses most often when it's drug into the light. So Mm -hmm. I think that there's so much wisdom in that. Let's talk about debt in general for a second because, you know, people tend to live in very narrow categories when it comes to debt. And so as a general question, do you think, I've got some specific things I want to ask you about, but in your mind, is all debt bad? You know, this is a tricky question um, because I'm not an expert. I'm not a financial expert. Yep. I'm not a spiritual expert. You know, I'm just Sherry. Yep. For us, we will never borrow again. Okay. So for our personal family choice, knowing that it led us to such a place of destruction where we could have been totally turned inside out if God had not changed the path of our lives. 
we just don't want to go back down that path again. My husband yeah. often says, you play with snakes, you're going to get bit. Yeah. And, you know, debt is certainly one of those types of tools that if you're not careful, you can end up in a world of hurt in no time flat. Sure. So for us, we will never choose to borrow again. I would never advise someone else to okay. borrow. It's not going to come out of my mouth, no matter how hard they try to convince me that they should because they're a special case. It's just... Yep. It's just not going to be something I would advise someone else to do. Okay. So without being super dogmatic about it, I, I, I put, I put questions out on or tell people on Facebook, you know, right. I, you might've seen that in the thread. So people asked about adoption, mm-hmm. people asked about school loans and mortgage. Those seem to be the three. So your counsel and we're just, what we're not you're not, it's not word of God, right. um, and, but, but your counsel would be at least in your situation, you would not borrow for any of those things again. No, not again. Um, okay. We would we would save, 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 and we would hustle to be able to to fund it and do yeah. everything that we could. You know, and for some people, that may mean moving mountains and literally scaling back their lifestyle to a very, very dramatic change where they're living very simply in order to obtain those higher goals. Yeah. Um, So, you know. So what about, so you, you and your husband both have your degrees done already. I know the school loan thing is there's an increasing amount of conversation around that. It is, um, you know, not impossible, but difficult to pursue higher education without taking out some amount of financial aid in some mm. way. So how are you people that don't have their degree, we have lo- young people listening and they're like, I'm, I want to go to college or I'm in college. Right. What are you uh, counseling people? Like how, how would they, if you could go back, how would you think differently, like specifically about the schooling thing? Well, start with scholarships, first of all, because there are a myriad of opportunities out there. We have a daughter who's in the seventh grade. She's writing essays for scholarships now. There are scholarships available that they give to middle school students, which is just crazy. So getting out there, doing your research, doing your homework on finding out what kinds of monies are available to you and turning every rock over, um, you know, and finding those paths. Secondly, working and cash flowing as much as possible. And so that means taking on extra jobs. That means hustling hard um, in addition to school. And it's not going to be a bed of roses, but you'll be so much more thankful on the other side of things. And then finally, if people do choose to borrow, I'm not going to hate on anybody. Obviously, we chose to borrow. It wasn't the best path, but um, making sure that you just don't blindly accept someone else's word about how much you need. For us, it was, they said, you need the full amount or you can have the full amount. So we said, okay, sounds good to us without investigating what it really costs and how much we could contribute on top of that. So, you know, for parents now, certainly beginning to save for your kids, not when they're in high school, but as soon as you can, and you're in a place where you can begin socking money away, time is your best friend. So the more that that can grow, the better off you'll be. But, you know, for people who are, you know, trying to go to college next semester, Obviously, it looks a lot differently, but investigating affordable places and we think, oh, we need to go to the biggest, best school. Well, that might not be the case. And you get a couple of years in a community college oh, and yeah. then transfer, you know, take classes during the summer that are more economical. But I know, especially for people, and I attended a, a faith-based university, 
it's expensive it to is, go yeah. to higher education that is um, faith based and God centered. And so just be in there and ask lots and lots of questions yeah. about how can you help me find out the best way to do this without borrowing money? Yeah. You know, I pastor a church that has a lot of people who are, you know, in college or people mm-hmm. who are going back to school. And I mean, we're definitely, I, I encourage people more and more to consider you know, junior college, community college for as much as is humanly possible because it is so much cheaper. And at the end, nobody, nobody cares where your, you know, your first two years or your gen eds were done. Just no, no, no job on the face of the earth cares about that. So why in the world would you pay extra for it if you don't have to? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Well, I know that that uh, getting financially free is a process, and like so many things, the first step can a lot of the times be the hardest. And so, what are some of the most important realities that you would tell people that they need to prepare for uh, as they kind of set out on this journey? You know, some of the first steps are actually not financial. And so I think our hearts, or at least my heart and mind, jumps to, let me make a spreadsheet, let me research theories, let me get ideas to reduce my bills, let me, you know, do all those physical things. And yet there is a spiritual element to debt. Obviously, wove throughout the scripture is the notion of debt. Jesus yeah. paid our debt. And this is language we are very familiar with. And I will say, being debt free and singing songs about debts being paid feels different. It is a good thing. Um, So coming to the place of realizing that forgiveness is the first step, and especially in our instance when we had chose to take on a lot of that debt and had not managed our resources well, that we needed to hit our knees before we hit the checkbook um, was was essential. And I I never want to kind of shoo that away as like, well, God doesn't really care about that kind of mundane detail or, um, you know, there are bigger spiritual issues. No, Mm -hmm. there is definitely a place for forgiveness Mm -hmm. in the midst of debt. And, And thankfully, we serve a God who loves us no matter what, who I'm pretty sure if he can keep the planet spinning and the universe um, in one piece, that certainly he can handle the amount of debt that you have, even if you don't want to post that on Facebook. He knows. Right. He already knows. So coming to that place, both with your spouse and with God and saying, we, we have blown it. What can we do to follow God's plan for our money? I, I just can't overemphasize beginning there yep. instead of beginning with theories and plans and classes. Yep. Practical things are very important. Mm-hmm. And I definitely tried to give people as many practical tools as possible in yep. slaying the debt dragon because I thought that that was you know essential. But if I don't emphasize that first, I think a lot of people could pay off debt, yeah. but might not be married at the end and might not have a full life. And so, you know, that's the first step. I think that's so good. We do a lot of um, financial counseling at our church. One of our uh, pastors, elders, meets with people individually. I try and preach on it at least once or twice a year. Awesome. Um, just stewardship and generosity and all, all of that. But the the counseling we do is is much more intensive. He helps them. I don't do it because it's not my strength, but he does and he's great. But um, I actually was talking to him this morning. He said the number one question every single time is just, where do I start? Mm-hmm. So you've you've talked a little bit about, I think that we have to start with, there's so much, um, I don't n- think that I would go so far as to say that all debt is sin uh, mm-hmm. or sinful, um, right. but much of the time, what fuels our, our 
financial stewardship, it can be sinful. So there might be sin to be repent, repented of. So there's right. all the spiritual things that we need to deal with. You've hit on that. But let's talk about the process that you lay out in the book. Someone comes and they're like, where in the world do I start? Help me understand. What, what, what do we tell them? Certainly. So one of the kind of out of the box things that we did from the get go was we chose to personify our debt. Okay. And this is kind of hokey and a little bit creative, but that's just who I am. Yeah. Hokey and a little bit creative. And so um, we chose to envision our debt as a dragon. Okay. And that just really helped us because it helped us to channel our energy toward the debt and since we're married, not toward each other, because it's very, very easy to become um, just very uh, antagonizing towards one another to have some animosity built up. And so for us, it was, this is an enemy. This is someone who is out to destroy our marriage. This is someone who wants to ruin our children. This is someone who wants us to, you know, determine when we can be generous and when we can't be generous. And so that little step seems so crazy, but for us was all the difference in the world. And I always tell people, you know, we don't feel as threatened by debt as we should. And in the book, I make the case that if I went back through and I replaced the word debt with Fred Johnson, and I said, Fred Johnson wants to destroy your marriage. Fred Johnson wants to tell you whether or not you can send your kids to college. Fred Johnson wants to tell you when you can and can't be generous. Oh yeah, that guy's a tyrant. Right. You hate Fred Johnson, Right. right? Which just disclaimer, I love Fred Johnson. If you're out there listening, totally a metaphor, but you know, that idea that we should be a little bit angry at this situation and that will fuel and motivate us. Now from there, certainly you need to have a plan. We're, we're big fans of Dave Ramsey and I share that in the book and a lot of Dave's practices and um, wisdom guided our steps, but we certainly got in there and made it our own as well. So the concepts though of, Having an emergency fund, I would say between one and two thousand dollars at least, because if you think of major repairs, your car blowing yeah. up, needing a new water heater, yeah. um, both of which happened while we were paying off debt. Yeah. You know those types of things. Uh, our daughter had surgery. Okay. All around between one and two thousand dollars usually, yeah. and so if you have that amount, set it aside. It is not an emergency to get a new spring wardrobe. You know, it is not an emergency to have a new pair of running shoes. This is like only for those life sort of situations that you can't control because it's never a question of if, but when, when it comes to those sorts of things, put that aside and don't touch it. And then unless it's truly an emergency. And then from there, we lined up our debts from smallest to the greatest, regardless of interest rate and began by chipping away at that first teeny one. And as you pay one off, you roll it up into the next amount. It's called the debt snowball. The concept's been around for a very long time and you gain momentum. That's right. A lot of math people push back immediately and they say, oh no, you're going to pay so much in interest, you know, on these other debts and That's just not the case. The momentum that you gain is addictive and it helps you to build that amount in because you'll take that payment you were already making and roll it into the next greater amount. You're not living on that money. And so it's more simple to put that life change into place. Yeah. So how how important is, you've got a chapter in there on budgeting, but do you have any thoughts around how, how people should think about setting up a budget to accomplish their goal of getting out of debt? 
Yeah, you know, definitely you want to see where you can strip back expenses in your life to be able to put that and leverage it toward paying off debt. And yet there's this temptation to make too much change at once. And we know that if we make any kind of life change, physical fitness, the way we discipline our kids, managing our finances, organizing our home, if we bite off more than we can chew, we will spit it back yeah, out. Yeah, you burn out. Yep. Yeah, so um, there's an author who has introduced this concept called the two-degree change. Okay. And the idea is to make small shifts, keep them in place over time, mm-hmm. and build upon that. Who's that so, author, if you don't mind me asking? Um, oh, I, oh, I'm I sorry to put you on that's the spot. That's okay. I know it's in the book. I'm like blanking on It's in your name. book, though? Yes, it's okay. definitely in the book. Okay. It's definitely in the book. Okay. Um, but anyway... He, he talks about this change, and I don't want to misquote him, yeah. but that small change is much, much more powerful than the enormous change. And so sometimes when I speak or sometimes when somebody reads something that I've written, they think, well, I'm going to do all those things at once. Well, that's not how we did it. Right. And the changes that we made in year four, things like we decided to quit eating meat for a stretch of time and use the money that we would have spent on meat toward paying off debt. If you had told me in year one, we would do that. I would have looked at you and said, you are crazy. Yeah, that is I, what I could not, crazy people do. I could not start with n- not eating meat by any means. You don't means. want to start there, no, right? That's too not. drastic of a change. But by the end, we were willing to make all kinds of sacrifices because we were so close. Totally, yeah. You know, so we were like, what else can we give up? What else can we turn over? And, yeah. and I did things like make our own laundry detergent, which the recipe is also in the book. Okay. And so, you know, those types of things, I think um, in the early days would not have been healthy changes for us to make. It was basically starting with, I've never really written down a meal plan before. Let's do that. Keep that in place for 30 days. What else can we do? And so that small change is so much more important than the drastic change. And I always use the illustration of if you're like a big diet Coke drinker, we know that if you knew you got up tomorrow morning and even though you've drank three to four cans a day for the last several years, you said, I'm never again. I'm done. Right. Sayonara. We know by the end of the week, there would be a 24 pack in your living room ripped into like a feral animal and you'd be rocking back and forth singing Taylor Swift jingles, you know, like just how it is. So I always encourage people start small with those changes. Yeah. One of the things that is cool about your book, I think there's a lot of things, but one of them is that there's a, there is a sense in which it is kind of your memoir on how you worked out so many of the, I mean, you mentioned Dave Ramsey and he, he's kind of like, seems to be so many people's go-to and he's been so helpful to so many. He's been helpful right. to my wife and I for sure. But I like the way that you sort of put on display how you made so many of those principles and others your own. Because mm-hmm. I think that's really important for people to do. You have to figure out what does this look like for us, don't you think? Right. So I really wanted to include the rubber meets the road details. So yep. what does it look like to pay off debt and celebrate Christmas? Yeah. What does it look like to give your kid a birthday party, you know, and pay off debt? And um, what does it look like in your kitchen? And honestly, it was everything that if I could sit down with you in my yellow and red 1950s kitchen and talk to you about finances, I just want to hold your hand for a minute and give you some brainstorms. You may not do exactly everything we did, but you might think, oh, well, we could do that. And that was kind of the momentum for writing the book was, how can I help people have hope? And how can I give them the tools that they need to do this realistically? 
Sorry to interrupt the conversation, but I wanted to share a simple way that you can help support In The Room. As you know, most weeks I'm talking with someone who's written a book about something. Now, I love books, and I know firsthand how expensive it can be to try to keep up with all the books that you'd like to read, including the ones that you hear about on this show. And this is why I'm so excited about our new partnership with Givingtons.com. Like Amazon, they sell books at discounted rates, but here's what's great for In The Room. When you buy a book through our store, we receive a portion of that sale to help continue bringing great weekly content. So for whatever featured book we're discussing on this week's episode, we receive a full $2. And for books from past episodes, we receive $1.25. Now, you've probably heard me say this before, but I want to help get this podcast to as many people as possible, and I need your help. So will you keep spreading the word on social media, and will you consider buying this week's book through givingtons.com? Just go to givingtons.com slash in the room. There you're going to find not only this episode's book, but books written by past guests as well. So check out our new store at givingtons.com slash in the room. Thanks so much for your help. And now back to the conversation. Well, you just, you mentioned the meat thing. I want to come back to that, uh, to food in general, not just the meat thing. Um, but you have a whole chapter dedicated to the whole issue of food and meal planning. And you mentioned a couple times in the book that one of the, the things that surprised you guy, you said it a few minutes ago was just how eating out can, can lead to, you know, it's just expensive to eat out mm-hmm. almost anywhere you go. But my question is, this is one of the things my wife and I have struggled with quality food, from a nutrition standpoint is not right. cheap. It's, right. it's very easy to eat on the cheap if you're eating lots of processed food. So when you think through how do you balance, how, how should people think about balancing health and nutrition with trying to eat on the cheap? Does that make yeah. sense? No, definitely. It's probably the, one of the number one things that I get asked about because people say, oh, well, we don't eat hamburger helper, you right. know, like... Right. Not that there's anything wrong with right. hamburger and helper now, but and then, some but, reason. But we do. You do sound smug when you say it like, yeah, and people say it like that. You just yeah, sound they, smug. I get that a lot. Yeah. I don't eat hamburger helper either. <laughs> yeah. Um, and in fact, we are pretty uh, nutritionally intense. I've got two people in my household who are gluten free. Okay. Um, we eat a lot of whole foods. We don't eat organic all the time, but yeah. we do eat organic part of the time. And <laughs> I actually find that you can go further on nutritionally dense food and honestly it's cheaper per ounce. So yes, that bag of chips is only 99 cents, but you're going to burn through it and you're going to need four more and a box of cookies to go with it. So that's not really a deal, but if you pick up an apple, you're going to be full. Mm -hmm. So there's some balance in there. I'm a huge fan of Aldi and I talk about that in the book some, and I definitely talk about that on the blog a lot, which has lots of great, both organic and non-organic choices. And what a lot of people don't know, maybe you mentioned this in the book and I missed it. They're owned by Trader Joe's. They are indeed owned by Trader Joe's and, um, you know, just super, super affordable. And before we started paying off debt, I just honestly thought Aldi was where the rotten vegetables went and the dented cans, just so not true. So if you're unfamiliar with shopping there, I encourage people to go there. And we're seeing more chains too, things like Sprouts and Fresh Time pop up that are giving consumers more options to eat healthfully on a budget. And so there are plenty of ways to save money and eat foods like that. You know, also tons of coupon apps, things like Ibotta and Checkout 51, 
Um, Groupon has one called Snap where you take a picture of your receipt and you can get money back for things like vegetables and meat and milk. And so things where you wouldn't traditionally think about clipping coupons, you can still save. So it's all about making the most of all you have. We grow a lot of our own food during the summer as well. And so that is super helpful too, but it's about making the most of that. And probably one of the biggest traps that people who eat healthfully fall into when it comes to managing things well is letting things expire or perish. And so that's where that meal planning element comes in because you want to be sure that you use everything up before you buy more before it goes bad. And the strategies in the book that I shared about eating came from the fact that the majority of people who talk to me about getting off budget, that is where they say they get out of whack the most, either by eating out too often or just not using what they have. Yeah. Well, it sounds like one of the hurdles that people have to get over for sure is just laziness because I listen to what you just said and I'm like, oh wow, that sounds like a lot of work. And if you're, and if you're serious, I mean, at least to get started, you know, to figure, I mean, you know, to, to be looking for, I mean, you're like a ninja of this. That's one of the things that's so helpful in the book. You've gone before and done so much work on, I didn't even know there was apps for coupons. So, you know, like you, you lay all that stuff out. And so you blog as well, correct? Give us that URL again. So I blog at queenoffree.net. And daily, I'm sharing things to help people improve their budget, to save money, but also to live life and enjoy it. Because I think one of the things I highlight in the book is that the word frugal has gotten a really bad rap. And we think about extreme people and we think about people dumpster diving or, you know, not using toilet paper, weird stuff. Whereas frugal in its roots means to enjoy. It comes from the same root root word that fruit and fruition come from. And so um, you should enjoy life when you're frugal. And I found through this process of kind of God whittling away at my heart that, yes, we did have a money problem, but I also had a contentment problem in the midst of that. And I began to realize the things that I really loved and I was willing to spend money on things that were very simple, like a glass of iced tea, because yeah. I love a good glass of iced tea. And you know, it doesn't really cost that much. Right. And so realizing that most of the things that bring us joy aren't that expensive right. and focusing in on them. So you can splurge every once in a while. That is totally fine. But it's a matter of being sure in those day-to-day sort of steps that you're intentional with what you've been given. Yeah. Well, one of the practical things that, you know, we get asked sometimes is, so let's say someone's put together their budget, you know, they've done that and they are spending within their budget. You know, let's say they get to the end and they still have debt that they're paying off, but they get to, let's say the end of the month. And for the sake of ease, they have a hundred dollars left over. They're not at the place where they're really chalking away a bunch of money into savings. They have their emergency fund already, but they got $100 left over. Do they put that into savings? Do they put that into paying down the debt? Do they split it between the two? Just that for some reason, that's something we get asked a lot. What, what, do, you, sure. what do you do with the extra? How do you counsel people on that? I'd say debt all the way, but that's okay. just me. You know, okay. realize that we were pretty hardcore, yeah. and why we were able to do it in four years. Yeah. And so, anything extra that came into our path, was whether that debt. was birthday money, that's yep. uh, so not fun to give your birthday money that so your depressing. mom gives you yeah. to put it toward debt. But now, yeah, it's worth awesome. It. Yeah, you know, totally worth it. But. Um, I would also have a hit list of things that you truly need. So if you got holes in your sneakers or your bath towels are falling apart or you know that your kid's going to need braces, 
that's where that hit list comes into play that, you know, you say, okay, well, we're going to take at least half of that hundred dollars and put it toward debt. And the other 50 is going to go toward these short term goals. Yeah. And just kind of knowing, not necessarily paying the bills, but just those things that happen in life that aren't really an emergency, but you need yeah. tennis shoes that don't have holes in them. Right. That's okay. You yeah, know, that's like, okay. it's a good gift. That doesn't make you a diva. No, no. All right. Well, let's talk about you mentioned tithing early on. And uh, so however we want to define that, I mean, in the most literal sense is giving a a tenth. Mm -hmm. That's what the biblical word means, a tenth back to God from what he's blessed us with. So uh, I know there's a lot of question around tithing in the midst of trying to get out of debt. And so um, I'd be curious to know if you're comfortable sharing what you guys did and how you counsel people. But if people are in debt, do you counsel they should get out of debt prior to, you know, living an out faithful generosity, or is mm-hmm. that something that should happen at the same time? So, um, again, defaulting to, I am not a theologian. I am yep. not a pastor. Um, I'm can only share what we did and uh-huh. what we learned through this process. So I always like to start with that. That's mainly so the pastors in the audience don't throw tomatoes at me. Yeah. Um, I have never met somebody in a relationship with Jesus who's committed and following him, who does not really somewhere in their heart want to give. Mm-hmm. It's never a problem of wanting to give within the life of a, a believer. It's more of a matter of figuring out how it's done when you can barely keep the lights on. Yeah. And so I think my heart always breaks when there's a message about tithing and people feel guilt and shame sure, because they can't yep. tithe. Um, and also, you know, always a full disclaimer that if you do tithe and then you're putting your groceries on a credit card bill, you are putting your tithe on a credit card bill, Yeah. you know, and I'm not talking about wild spending thousands of dollars at the grocery store. I'm talking about what it takes to make your household function. Yeah. And so my heart is for people who can't catch a vision Mm -hmm. for what it looks like to give, to tithe and um, be able to maintain life in their household. Uh, I default to Timothy Keller. I'm a big Tim Keller fan, and I kind of explore this in the footnotes of the book, so if you didn't catch it, you can go back in there and read it, who um, basically has an admonition to people who are paying off debt to make good on your debt before you tithe. Hmm. Uh, that being said, you still need to give. Yeah. And so that percentage of people get hung up on the 10% number, I think sometimes and just think, Oh my word, what am I going to do? Um, Keller says you need to give until you feel it. Yeah. That's and good. for some people that is less than 10%. Uh-huh. And for some people that is more than 10%. That's right. And so, um, while we were paying off debt, we gave, Yep. But we did not, in the traditional sense, tithe. Yeah. Um, my husband also offered professional services like crazy, um, mm-hmm. which would have amounted to way over 10% because that's what we could do. That yeah. was the gift that we had, you know, and, and I sought to help people, um, whether through mentoring or through my website by giving in that way. Yeah. And when we served like crazy, every time the doors were open at our church, we were there. 
And so um, that was the choice. Now that we're on the other side of debt, we definitely tithe. And we give beyond tithing. Uh, In fact, one of the very best parts about being debt-free is we have this fund that we call the Generosity Fund. And it exists for the sole purposes of encouraging other people, whether that's like, you know, they're running a 5K and we want to support them by donating money. We have a friend who's planting a church. And so we're supporting their efforts as well. Or we just want to buy a really good book for somebody that we know. Or a couple of weeks ago, we went to a Christian college. We have lots of friends who are students and we filled the refrigerator and cooked a huge meal for about 20 kids, you know? So that is the best part about being debt free to me. Yeah. Um, you know, saving money. Yay. Raw. We just bought a car with cash, Woo-hoo. Yeah, that's great. but being able to have that account and say, here's what we can do beyond yeah. tithing. That's so fun. Yeah. It's just, just awesome. Totally. So that's my answer. Yeah, that's you know, good. It's, it's of, ama- isn't it amazing how much more authority your words carry when you said Tim Keller said? Yeah, I know, it's right? It's so helpful in almost any context. Right. Uh, he has some great videos on the Redeemer yeah. site that talk specifically about that. And in the footnote of the book, I have the direct link okay. to that little interview. It's part of his questions and answers series where he talks about that and talks yeah. about generosity. It, it's tricky, you know, and I never want anybody to be like just lays out and not right. give because they think, well, we can't do that, but you still have cable, but yeah. you still have travel sports, but you right. still have all these other things. No, that's an excuse. Yeah. And yet at the same time, there are people who honestly, single mama, working two jobs, yep. 10% may not be a realistic right. vision for her finances. And yet she needs to give something. Right. And so it's somewhere yeah. in the mix, isn't that? It's that messy grace thing. It is, yeah. And I mean, we, we try to take <clears throat> with our members uh, this kind of situation on a case-by-case thing. I think that right. your encouragement to be giving something is a good one for sure. But there are, you know, it's not, there's not a law on the whole mm-hmm. thing. And I think the people that are really quick to want to play, you know, the law card and say, well, the tithing thing was an Old Testament thing. Um, that was a part of the law. I think that we have to be quick to go, well, let's have a conversation about the way that Jesus treated the old Testament law, right? which is to constantly like blow it out of the water by making mm-hmm. it much more difficult. So right. it's um, that ideal. And he says, let's go beyond. Yeah, that. exactly. You know, and, and I think that's the way, but sometimes that takes some baby steps totally of does. easing yeah. your way into it. And I will note quickly too, if you have a spouse who is not a follower of Jesus, yes. mandating a tithe on them is going to sound wackadoodle. Totally. And uh, tithing is not worth tearing your marriage in two. Mm-hmm. And that's a pretty big statement. Yeah. Uh, and it's hard for us to swallow who love Jesus, but until they're in a place where they can understand what that really is, it's not dues to church. It's not, you know... A donation. It's something different. Um, be patient with mm-hmm. your spouse and love them well yep. and cast that vision with a big heart and not a strong hand. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I just had a woman come forward after a service a few weeks ago and she asked me that very thing. Her husband's not a believer. She wants to be able to, to give and, uh, but knows that he's not going to be down for that. And that's, that's exactly what I told her. I mean, if the guy's not a Christian, the way to try to get him to church is for sure not to ask him to give 10% of your guy's money. That's not a great evangelistic tool. Uh, so I think to, uh, yeah, I think to involve, um, 
you know, your, your pastor, small group leader, other people, I think to bring other people into the process to help you make the decision to read your book, all that kind of stuff is really, really helpful for people. So I'm on board with that. All right, well, let's finish up talking about some things to watch out for, because there's a lot of schemes out there promising financial freedom. And, uh, and what would you say are some of the most common ways that people get tricked or hung up in the process uh, of trying to get financially free? Nothing good happens overnight. Yeah. And so anything, yet, anything that is like get free quick is yeah, probably not, quick, not good. Quick is not true, you yeah. know? And I, I will say that for the people that I have known who have paid off debt, um, it has never come without paying the price of time. Yep. And so... I would be suspicious of anything that was too quick. And I share the story in the book of the fact that I used to pray these prayers where God would have someone send us this miraculous check. And this miraculous check would be the exact amount that we owed. And how awesome would it be to give God the glory in the midst of that, that that person didn't even know how much we owed and, it was a fairy tale, yeah. you know, and I don't think it was God's plan for us to really learn the path of redemption through our finances. And it would have been much easier to return to debt if it disappeared suddenly, but four years, four Christmases, four, you know, anniversaries, 16 birthdays, lots of years in grade school, those days were worth more than $127,000 in the lesson of don't do this again. And don't return to the slavery that you came out of. And yet the quick fix, whether that's some sort of plan that's going to, you know, even good things like a friend of ours asked us about, should he do this thing where if he works at a nonprofit for 10 years, they'll pay off all of his student loan. It's a great idea and concept, Mm -hmm. and yet my husband's advice to him was, you're trading one set of chains for another. What if God calls you somewhere else? Mm -hmm. You're there for 10 years. Do it yourself. Do the work, even when it stinks, and, you know, give God the glory in the process, but um, anything quick is scary. I'm not a big fan of consolidation programs as okay. well, just because I feel like nobody cares about your money more than you do. Yeah, that's no true. matter how much a company preaches that they're going to help you through this process, you can do that. And it's probably to your benefit to better understand your money and line out a process yourself. Um, but anything like that, I'm usually a little bit suspect of because those companies, they're not your friend. They're a business and their model is to make money. And so, um, which is fine. That's their, their job and they supply employment for people, but trying to convince yourself that somebody else has your best interest at heart. It's a little suspect. Yeah. I think it's pretty safe to say that there is no sanctification. There's no spiritual growth. There's nothing significance, uh, of significance that happens, uh, quickly. (laughs) Like no. it just takes time. And um, I think that that's a really good caution and word. So, all right. Th- lastly, let's say there's somebody listening and I've been in this place before that really feels like they're drowning and mm. uh, is, is in that state of uh, maybe they're feeling shame. They're feeling isolated. They feel like they're still in the dark. They haven't taken this out into the light yet. How just where, where would you encourage them in? Con- I'm going to encourage them to get your book. Well, how would you encourage them? Um, 
just speak to them in the midst of that? Sure. I, I would just say to anybody who feels like that to lift up your eyes because you're caught in the here and now. Um, you're caught in this moment that is weighing you down and you can't see beyond it. And I understand what that feels like because I have been there and it is a, it's a discouraging place, but um, you need to seek out wise counsel. And that's usually a little bit difficult to do when it comes to money because the voices that are the loudest typically know the least. Mm, and good. so that's a great life principle. Uh, yeah. Um, the people who are the most successful with money that I know are not very braggadocious yep. about it. And so uh, it may take a little bit of time to figure out who those people are. Certainly, you need, you know, talk to your pastor, find out if your church offers something like Crown or FPU, get into community because community is where we grow the strongest and where God refines our lives and where you'll find good ideas of other people traveling the same path who can understand what it feels like yeah. to be you. Community, I can't even tell you there's an entire chapter devoted to that idea of mm -hmm. finding the right type of friends and being in consistent contact with them about your finances. Yeah. Well, I heard uh, Pastor Erwin uh, McManus one time say that God wants to turn your misery into ministry. Mm. And uh, for that to happen requires, I think, the courage to go through the, the misery. And so just as we close, I want to thank you for your courage to be able to not, not just buckle down and deal with the things that you guys needed to in your own life, but God's using you know, a difficult lesson that you learned to help so many other people. And that requires an immense amount of grace and courage. And so, yeah, just personally want to say thank you for your willingness to, to drag it into the light and to, to allow us to come into that and to grow with you. It's been great. And the book is great. Thank you so much. I appreciate that encouragement. It means more than you know. Good. Well, thanks for coming on in the room. My thanks to Sherry for her time and for the conversation. And don't forget, on my blog, you're also going to find ways for you and I to stay connected via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, as well as any additional show notes that you may want from today's episode. So until next week, I count it a great honor to learn with you. I love you and thanks so much for listening.